Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. I was excited, Craig, recently to watch the new Path of the Panther documentary. This is the Carlton Ward film who we've had on the uh, podcast before. He's the the sort of uh, public face of the Florida Wildlife Corridor, and this was the film he shot over several years particularly focused on that uh, breeding female panther mm-hmm. north of the Caloosahatchee River. Right. And if you recall, Carlton was a the char- a character in sort of the last chapter of my book, Cattail, um, uh, because he, he was at that point, he was pursuing those photos. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a it's a great documentary. I would encourage people to watch it. There's also a, an excellent uh, coffee table book that goes with it that preserves a lot of his photos and presents those and has has in there essays by uh carl hyacin and other florida mm-hmm. writers uh, cynthia barnett uh, another person who's been on the podcast to, yeah to talk yeah about i won't things. uh spoil the ending for people but i i was crying tears of, of joy and sadness throughout it it, it mm-hmm. opens with a heartbreaking scene it uh follows a remarkable individual panther who was hit by a car twice and was 50-50, euthanized this animal because it is in such bad shape with you know multiple fractures in its hips and its legs. They decided to do what amounted to experimental surgery at, at I want to say Zoo Tampa, and then Probably. took or, the rehab yeah. mm-hmm. took the rehabilitated right. animal up to White Oak Conservation Institution here uh, in Northeast Florida by me in like the Yuli Callahan area, which is a, mm-hmm. a world renowned captive breeding place, not specifically for panthers, for like rhinoceros Plus, and, yeah. and you know, just a ama- cheetah. They've got, you know, amazing species from all over the world there in, in captive breeding. Uh, and that is an extraordinarily uplifting story that I will uh spoiler alert it made it carlton was there that when it was released from the vehicle back into the wild and it just so it, it but it also shows these dramatic photos of development uh just north of the fakahatchee state park it, it shows the caloosahatchee river craig which is nothing like a river it is a ditch it, it oh, is yeah. a it is a channel. You think of a river, and you think of meandering and wetlands, and the the Calusa hatchet. So it, it does. There's a great uh, point in there which shows this aerial map of Florida and uh, Lake Okeechobee, and and how the water is siphoned off through the Calusa hatchet and the Port St. Lucie River to avoid going to the sugar plantation, so it can't get to the every. Uh, you know, I go on and on about this thing, but it, it, Disney Plus. See, so you Path like of the Panther. It, it's really <laughs> fantastic. You know, we can sit here and talk, right, uh, and, and bring on these guests, and it's wonderful. Candidly, we can't compete with the visuals. And Carlton had set up camera traps all over yep. South Florida on some of these ranches that are, are the last remaining undeveloped places uh, in the northern uh, part of the Panther's habitat. And, you know, again, you see these animals, and I think you and I feel this this, this sort of thing, and, and most conservationists do. You see that animal, you see the beauty of that animal, you look at that animal in the eyes, and it is not a question of why should we save this. It is an inherent responsibility to save these animals, to allow these animals to thrive. They are as much a part of this state, these habitats, this planet, as we are, and to be so reckless with their life and their future is is to me no less um, abominable than to be reckless with the lives of people. So uh, Disney Plus, Path of the Panther, go back in the archives, listen to the Florida Wildlife Corridor episode, the mm-hmm. coffee table book, and Carlton's all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find him everywhere, but that is is worth your time for sure. It is now Hurricane season, want to remind everyone, windstormproducts.com. Protect your house from hurricane wind damage. They've got an 800 number in the upper right-hand corner of the website. Call them and say, hey, here's where I live. Here's my house, and here's how I face the wind, and I've got shutters or patio furniture that I want to protect, and they've got all the the hardware and the bolts and the the screws and everything to uh, protect your house from the hurricane wind damage. Largest distributor of hurricane uh, hardware 
in the world, windstormproducts.com. Path of the Panther leads us nicely into our yes, guest this week. Anders <laughs> and Beverly Gyllenhaal are authors of A Wing and a Prayer, The Race to Save Our Vanishing Birds, just published in April of 2023. Both of them have spent a lot of time in Florida. They met in Miami. Yes. They're both floor, former uh, Miami Herald uh, reporters. How did you get uh, them on your radar screen, Craig? Well, I've been I've been following Andrew's writing for quite a while. He's written quite a bit about uh, endangered species and specifically endangered birds. And uh, when he contacted me and said, "Hey, we wrote a book. You want to see it?" I was like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. of course." And uh, and one of the great stories they tell in the book, and what we're going to get them to talk about today, is a um, an endangered bird that nearly went extinct and was saved at the last minute. Does that sound like the panther story? Mm. Um, uh, and it's, it's just a very compelling, uh, story. And that's, that's part of their, part of their book. So that's, yeah. that's where that came from. And it is a Florida bird and birds, uh, are in real danger. Something like a third of all bird populations in North America have vanished in the past 50 years. You're talking about billions and billions of fewer birds than there used to be. And that takes us to our guest this week, Anders and Beverly Gyllenhaal and the Florida Grasshopper Sparrow. Hi, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And your your book is absolutely fascinating. Before we get in into it and specifically into the amazing story of the Florida grasshopper sparrow. Tell people how you traveled around the country doing your research, because I I thought that was particularly interesting. Yeah, well, thank you for having us on. We really uh, enjoyed the chance to talk uh, with you. We we got obsessed, you know, with birds um, and started writing about them. And then we realized there was a bigger story to be told. But we felt like it was important just to be on the front lines of that. And we had been Spending a lot of time in a little airstream trailer uh, in in those all of days. fifty square feet of living space. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> Pretty close quarters. So we made the mistake or the decision to 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 pack up and and travel. Uh, that allowed us to you know be right where the birds were and where the research was, and um, you know set up in the middle of uh, of a prairie lands where the birds were or San Diego Bay uh, or a swamp uh, swamp you know, too. <laughs> so it was really helpful and I think al- allowed us to see this story from from really close up maybe in telling the Florida grasshopper sparrow story that I'm, I've been thinking about the way to start this maybe the place to start is with what happened to the dusky seaside sparrow sure yeah yeah and um and it's really interesting to compare these two cases because they have obviously a lot of the same factors were at work in threatening both of these species, and they've gone you know very different ways. The dusky seaside was the last bird uh, on the mainland anyway to go extinct, and um, and that kind of uh, cast a pall I think over Florida birding in a lot of ways because they really screwed up the the case. They waited waited too long, and when they tried to you try to breed and there are only five males, you're not going to, it's not going to go yeah, well. Right. You know, <laughs> That's we, not going to work. You know, yeah. Yeah. Bird was a and, and they wound up at, at Disney World, didn't they? The last they bird. They wound up at Disney yeah. World. Yeah. That, that was interesting too. And I mean, that basically it was, this is a bird that's, that's hanging around where Cape Canaveral ended up being. And so the changes that took place there contributed to this along with flooding and, uh, and just an, un, and, and there was a certain amount of DDT involved in it as well. So, yeah. The bird was, you know, certainly could have gone the same route that the Florida grasshopper sparrow has been going, uh, but they they didn't know enough about it. There was a really interesting story that uh, John Fitzpatrick, the the Cornell director of many years and now emeritus there, tells of when he was at Archbold, this is the, you know, the terrific um, research center in the middle of the state. They had a meeting about the the dusky seaside and said, "Well, uh, what do we know about it?" And they went around the room, and the the then uh, director there says, "Well, uh, tell me something. Does this bird does the male help feed the the nest when they're raising their chicks?" And he went around the room, and nobody knew that. And the guy just blew his top and said, "You're supposed to be protecting this bird, and you don't know something as fundamental as what's happening at the nest." And we thought, "Well, that was a, you know." Uh, it is a peek into the world of biology, but it was also yeah. an example of just not knowing enough about the bird to be able to save it. What year did it go extinct? 87. Yeah. yeah, 87. Wow. 
Well, so not that long ago. Not that long. Relatively speaking. So when did when did scientists recognize that the grasshopper sparrow, also a, a species uh, here in Florida, was in danger of going down a similar path and and really step in with with yeah. efforts to prevent what had probably just happened relatively speaking to the dusky seaside sparrow yeah it was right on on uh in the same time frame so it it goes back about 20 years when uh, they knew this bird was in trouble it was on the endangered species list uh but it was sort of holding its own in this prairie land uh in the middle of of the state and uh and then all of a sudden uh one of the the population centers just collapsed practically mm. overnight they didn't really know why and so they started to watch it this is in the early 2000s and then all of a sudden all of the populations did the same thing to the point that there was just really two dozen breeding pair remaining oh my gosh. Wow. And so this is, you know, reached the point where at any point a, a flood, a hurricane, whatever, would wipe out the species. But it still took them a long time to figure out what to do. You know, when you have that few that few birds, it's a big risk to start taking them off their natural habitat and even to bring in eggs to try captive breeding, which we haven't gotten to that yet. But that's after um, several years of discussion. That's where they ended up, of course, mm-hmm. with the captive breeding program that's now proving to be. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a tough choice. And like, Greg, you talked about in, in the cattail book, you know, when you're going to get that hands on, you are, of course, disturbing the animals, you're harassing the animals, you're hazing the animals with something as small as a sparrow. Obviously, you risk killing the bird by handling it. They could fly off. I mean, you, you'd have no idea how these few individuals are going to respond to this sort of intensive contact with humans. So this, you, you, you risk that, you know, the cure is worse than the disease uh, potential when, when you go in like this. That's, that's correct. And so they initially had hoped to be able to do this through, through picking up eggs in the wild, but that did not work. And so they eventually decided to go with captive breeding. And for, for folks not familiar with this, it's not an uncommon approach with birds or other, you know, other species in trouble, but each one of them is different. Every, mm-hmm. every case is is new and, and hard. And it took them about five years to figure out exactly the right combination of what do they need to feed them insects for a while. Yeah. They started to show uh, signs of illness. They couldn't figure out what it was. And they eventually this these were the breeding birds. They eventually decided that it was that they were giving them dead insects as opposed to live ones. So that meant they mm. had to start to rake up uh, live mm-hmm. insects to feed to these yeah. birds, and that and that and, and that worked. So I think they decided in the end it was like a vitamin deficiency, r- r- right? So that's sort so of a that's pe- getting pretty specific with a little bird that small too. When you're going sure. down a vitamin deficiency, well, maybe maybe we should talk about that. Describe describe this bird that they're saving. Is it some big spectacular? bird with fantastic plumage. That's the interesting thing about this. This is a bird that hardly anyone's ever going to see. Not only is it small, it's just a tiny sparrow, fairly nondescript. Um, You know, after you get into the bird and watch it and and, and spend time with it, it's it's beautiful like all birds, but really it's a little brown bird that spends its time hidden away in the prairie land. So not only do you not tend to see it, but it's in a place where people don't go. And even experts um, might have trouble finding it, except in the spring when it decides mm-hmm. to get up on a reed and start singing. Yeah. As, yeah. as a rank amateur bird watcher myself, whether, you know, sparrows are notoriously difficult to ID. You look in the books and it's like the difference between one hash mark over the <laughs> eye or, or one, you know, little dot on the wing or something. So it, not not to mention a bird like this that is going to be in remote areas in incredibly small numbers. You know, and that's the good point that that this is what the, you know, the idea of trying to protect species of all kinds is all about. Do we just go for the high profile bald eagles and condors and and whooping, whooping cranes? Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. or do we try to protect the little birds that we don't even really spend any time with? And the answer that you'll get from the experts as well as, you know, the whole conservation world is you have to protect all the different layers uh, to be able to have an ecosystem that mm-hmm. works. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's why the sparrow, which is, um, Craig, I think you've written about this bird as a potato chip of the, um, of <laughs> the, the prairie. prairie. I love it, that. Eats it, it eats stuff, eat things, eat it. It's piece of the, the overall layer that, the whole fundamental thing isn't going to work unless all those pieces are in place. You know, it's really hard to think about this little bird being the prairie potato chip. But then when you realize, okay, part of its job is to be food for something else sure. on the food chain. Mm-hmm. But um, I sometimes wonder, and this is complete conjecture on my part, is if the dusky seaside had not gone extinct, would there have been this amount of urgency? And um, I mean, certainly it's on the endangered species list. And by virtue of that, mm-hmm. um, the country has the responsibility. But I really think it would have been a black mark in Florida's eye if they had let two birds in a row go extinct. Yeah, that's they, a good point. folks admit that, too, that, that that's part of the motivation here was well, we can't let on our watch this happen twice. Yeah, um, it's an incredibly ignominious distinction you know for for florida to and you know you look at you know a species that is almost the opposite in every way except what needed to be done the california condor here is this enormous bird that you know people love to see and it needed captive breeding as well but you know that is the sort of apex you know whether it's polar bears panda bears florida panther manatee something that's very easy for people to to get behind because there's stuffed animals and it's you know you're able to (laughs) animate it and show people it and put it in a zoo and it's really remarkable you know the 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 season you know sparrows are none of those things any of them no they're not when I first saw, um, when we first went to the prairie and visited with the researchers, I said, you know, this bird needs a billboard. <laughs> and they actually kind of looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I'm like, people need to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, they they're, they're, they did they did something like that in California. They were trying to get people behind this idea of building a wildlife overpass for the uh, mountain lions there. And they actually yeah. used the one that was hanging out by the Hollywood sign as a, a mascot for the whole PR campaign, put up billboards, they had stuffed animals and, and you know, and, and the donations came in to actually make the thing happen. So mm-hmm. you're, you're right. You were absolutely right about the billboard. <laughs> yeah. For, for most people, it is very difficult to get behind abstract ideas, you know, stuff that they, they, they never see, let alone, you know, is not in Disney movies or cartoons. Uh, but there've been plenty of, of those sort of birds that have gone extinct also, when you look at the Carolina parakeet or the ivory-billed woodpecker, it's not just like, you know, the passenger pigeon, if you, you see one, they're they're gorgeous. Uh, yeah. So it's not just like small beige birds that no one has ever seen are going extinct. No, the, the, know, the we, top we, of the pyramid oh, are also. Sorry, but, you know, when you think about the passenger pigeon, um, you know, that was the chicken of the era. I mean, mm-hmm. they were yeah. eating, people were eating these birds. They, and people didn't really understand, I don't think, um, back then, you know, there were billions of these birds. The flocks would darken the sky, but that's amazing. Those stories birds. about literally that's like cloud cover. There were so many, but it was the most numerous bird species in North America to zero. Right. Yeah. But I wonder if the same, you know, have the forces changed today? You know, have the conditions changed um you know would we let say i don't know well we wouldn't let the bald eagle go extinct what's all around you almost everywhere you look and makes your life better birds learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called birds of a feather talk together two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. That is wrapped up in a lot of nationalism, however, to, to an extent that most birds are not advantaged with people are able to wrap themselves around the flag and tie that to a nationalist uh, campaign that no other bird in america benefits from 
Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but that the, the bald eagle is a, a, a special case because of its binding to American symbolism. Yeah, you know, one of the th- things that we we found in all these travels was that each part of the the, the country is 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 different. You have to look at each state, and, and because a lot of wildlife oversight is mm-hmm. done on the state level, and each you know each ecosystem separately. And I have to say that that Florida, in many respects, is we, we saw Florida as this you know laboratory where you know the growth is um, practically unprecedented up against these resources and birds and other wildlife that are that are that help define the state. So. Mm-hmm. The the Florida grasshopper sparrow is a is a positive story of the state and federal getting together with nonprofits, and and pulling off you know a, a rescue mission that that they you know that hasn't happened in every case. So we thought that was interesting to recognize. And the state apparatus, as it goes, is pretty good uh, compared to other states in trying to protect birds. There are all kinds of examples of us screwing things up as well. So. I sort of th- saw that bird as, <clears throat> excuse me, as a, a tale of sort of, you know, two 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 separate views of of this: a state that is putting huge pressure on its natural resources at the same time as doing some things right. Mm-hmm. We should not forget to mention the place where the captive breeding took place, which is pretty amazing too, right? <laughs> and 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 that is another piece of the Florida landscape. You have these several. Really pretty impressive conservation centers. This is the White Oak Conservation Center. It's right on the border of Georgia and Florida. And it's it's the product of these two different billionaires. We tell the story in the book of how this came to be. And they are basically focused on the big uh, the big game uh, animals from all over the world, rhinos and giraffes and tigers and panthers. They even have the um, retired elephants, of course, from Ringling, mm-hmm. born in the Bayless Circus there. So yeah. they were used to doing this kind of work, uh, and 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 the, and the Florida grasshopper sparrow comes along needing help, and so they said, "Well, let's let's give this a try and see if if our expertise in the big guys can be applied to a, a tiny little bird." And so the setting here is 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 quite something. There's you know a huge uh, polar bear that greets you when you first go in. This is a place where Mikhail Barishnikov was. Paid to dance, uh, and 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 they have uh, fossils of all kinds of dinosaurs. It's quite a yeah. place with the billionaire. Yeah, uh, Julia Roberts has stayed there. I've I've been to White Oak, and coincidentally enough, we started the episode talking about the new Path of the Panther documentary, where White Oak is featured prominently as well. That's where one of the panthers struck and had all this uh, reconstructive surgery on its limbs was sent to rehabilitate in a larger enclosure. And it's in Yulee, Florida, where, I mean, just you can't imagine that this world-class captive breeding research facility that has animals from the African savanna, some of the most endangered, rare mammals in the world, uh, is, is right there just west of I-95 as you cross the border from Georgia into Florida. But the, the research work that they do, the captive reading work, and I was not aware that the they did they did work with the grasshopper sparrow uh, as well. It's it's a remarkable, literally world-class facility. You know, you can you're you can go and visit. Mm-hmm. They, they do tours. Yeah. Yeah. They don't do a lot and they're pretty expensive, but I'll put a link to White Oak in the uh show notes. I actually to get totally inside baseball here, because, you know, this episode or podcast is a lot about conservation. You know, I reached out to White Oak and said, hey, you know, I think your mission aligns with our mission. We should try a partnership here. They weren't interested in it because they, 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 yes, they do have tours and they do have some events, but don't confuse it with a zoo or, you know, something right. where, you know, they have hundreds of people coming through there every day. A, a trip to White Oak is a very special and rare opportunity and and if you are really into the sort of things that we talk about on this podcast you should you should make a a pilgrimage but it's it's a different sort of place it's not it's not a it's not gatorland it's not a safari park it's not the the jacksonville zoo it's i i dare say unique yeah so what what they did was they said okay well we'll try to figure this out they went off to the edge of 
of the compound, and they set up these little cages uh, where they would bring the the sparrows in from the prairie and try to get them to breed. Uh, and they set up, you know, they put in grasslands to kind of mimic what the prairie is like. They had these little little picnic tables with roofs on them in case they wanted to get out of the the rain and 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 it would feed them there. And so when we went out there to try to see them, what's so interesting about the sparrow is even in that setting where you know it's a twenty by fifteen square foot little uh, cage, you have to work to see them. They're just like little tiny little things under the under the grass. Um, so it took a long time for them to to get the breeding to work. At, and at one point. At another location, rare species in uh, in South Florida, all the birds uh, died from a mm. a bacteria. No, a, it was a parasite. A parasite that swept through and killed them all. So it, it was clearly not an easy thing to pull off. But after about four years, they you know created a whole little uh, class of fresh sparrows that they could then gradually put out on the prairie. And try to get them to breed with wild sparrows, and that's how the process of rebuilding the population uh, took place. Um, and and now that that you know that number of the way they count them is is the number of breeding pair has uh, more than doubled. So it's still uh, it's still tricky. It sort of shows that it takes a long time for a species to get into trouble, and it takes a long time to try to get them out of trouble. Mm-hmm. That's what's the, playing out there. And and what, what impressed me in reading, in reading your book is the amount of follow up that was done. It wasn't just, OK, we've got the we've got the sparrows are going to turn them loose. Yay, we're done. But right. they did. They did a, a lot of making sure that they succeeded while they were out there. Can you talk right, a little so about that? They have to go in. And the first thing they have to do, of course, is find the nest. And once they do, they need to raise it, um, put like dirt under it and and raise it. So, so they build their nests at the bottom of these little shrub bushes and the wire grass and everything. So they're very difficult to find. But um, there is a potential for flooding. So they raise the nest. The next thing they do is they wait until the birds fly off to get food. And they have about 20 minutes. They put a wire fence around the nest to try to keep out most predators, snakes and hawks and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. The hawks don't work so well. Well, that's true. The hawks, <laughs> they have to hide from those. But they don't have it. No, it doesn't have a lid on the top. <laughs> uh, and, and and then they put up a camera and they watch them uh, around when you know it's interesting you go out into the middle of this prairie and it it looks like a savanna it goes on for miles so it helps you realize that finding that nest is 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 not easy uh, at, at all but they so they locate them and then they watch them and they have the camera focused on them and then they watch to see as these uh as they breed and you know a new generation begins to form and uh, the, the really interesting part of the Florida grasshopper sparrow is they 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 are really great breeders. They will have sometimes four and five broods, you know, a group of of, of new chicks a year. Wow! So wow. Produce dozens and dozens of them, but most of them, ninety percent or so, will succumb to the forces out there because, sure. as you say, they're potato chips. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a uh, a percentage game that most of these birds will die on the cause here Mm -hmm. and then you get just a few birds and this is where you get into the other side of this story which is that each of those each of those birds that actually reach a a maturity and and breed they cost an investment of about thirty thousand dollars so each each so it's not wow expensive and and that's where that's where the endangered process is is spending most of its time right on the edge of extinction for lots of reasons we can get into so we're 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 doing our work on the most the highest percentage of, of failure the most expensive and and also you know the place where uh where you just got a few uh, species left and that's the challenge of this well and it, it also demonstrates that the old uh what is it um ounce of prevention is worth a pound mm-hmm. of cure once once a situation gets so i mean this is like having near terminal cancer and you got to be in the hospital and all the specialized care that's expensive right. when boy if you just hadn't smoked all that time it'd be a lot better <laughs> situation uh so you know it, you getting back to all this development all this human pressure on these populations well if we just dialed that back somewhat 
set aside more green space, natural space, planted some native plants, took care of the, the tree canopy. All of that is virtually no cost versus coming in here and, and spending $30,000 per individual because it's that or put it on the wall next to the dusky seaside sparrow and the passenger pigeon in your natural history museum. Uh, it, it, it shows... I don't know if it shows our priorities or, or the way we approach problems, but our, our healthcare system is very similar, where we're just very focused on we'll treat you once things get terrible. Uh, right. As far as we don't we don't treat health, we treat sickness, and, right. and that's and that, you know the point you're making is sort of one of the thrusts of this book, and that is that you know the system we set up, including the Endangered Species Act and all the provisions were designed for another time when there were many fewer species getting into trouble. And so working on the edge of extinction was more fruitful. And it's worked very well because you can go through the list of bald eagles and condors and whooping cranes and, you know, Mm -hmm. long list of birds that have been brought back. But now, you know, since the 2019 discovery that we've lost third of the bird population in North America, there's this whole uh, avalanche of birds and other species that are moving toward this this edge of extinction. And so we have to find a way, as you're saying, Chad, to focus earlier in the process. It's a hard thing to do. It, oh. it's, it's not. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about people dedicating their lives to this, their <laughs> entire professional career. You know, you've got PhDs who are, you know, spending 20 years to make sure these couple, few dozen, maybe individuals make it. That is wonderful but that's not that's not a sustainable business model so to speak for protecting wildlife in 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 north america and again craig's cattail demonstrates the same thing i mean it's this is you're you're calling in the national guard essentially for this one species well and what about all the other species you know there are too many anymore to to do this sort of intensive work around just one but the example that of the many examples we look toward that that show another way of doing it are ducks and geese, right? So Mm -hmm. ducks and geese went into the same kind of collapse as many of these species we're talking about uh, years ago. And and instead of of taking, waiting until it was too late, you know, mostly duck hunters got together and figured out how can we protect the breeding grounds, mostly in Northern US and Canada, how can we build Mm -hmm. wildlife uh, refuges, which are now, you know, 500 of them. How can we set the table to protect birds early in the game? And it's worked really well. Ducks and geese are the only species that have, in that same 50 years, have increased by more than 50%. And that's there's the duck stamp program primarily, well, right? Well, not just <clears throat> the duck things. stamp program. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things is the Pittman Robertson Act. Which puts Kate Pittman's. Yay. <laughs> Is that a relative? <laughs> no, no. All my all my relatives are gunned down robbing liquor stores. I think. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole system, and and interestingly, anyway, what what is the what is the act? Um, we cut you off. Well, yeah, it puts a tax on um on guns, ammunition, bows and arrows. So there's a constant supply of funding. That I mean, mm-hmm. how did we get five hundred and thirty seven? wildlife refuges. Well, it took a lot of money to do that. And the duck stamp is just a small percentage of that. And, and you know, that it, it's billions of dollars. I think the last figure is $17 billion since the time the act went through, you know, 50 years ago. So that's, that, well, that's the, 50 years ago. Right, right. That, that's the, the example that, you know, you, you argue could be used on other species if we had the wherewithal to do that. And so in order to make that happen, for instance, you might say, well, how come birders aren't paying something just like hunters are? How come we're not taxing binoculars? Binocular sales, yeah. Yeah. It could easily happen, almost did happen at one point, and then it was shot down, so to speak. Um, So the question is- Yeah, okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of myself. (laughs) do, do, Do we want to take the kind of measures that could avoid us losing another third of the population over the next 50 years. The book argues that, you know, this is really worth doing, which is sort of the next Uh part of the, the, the the whole point here is that we're paying a price as we lose these species that we're not even fully aware of. Another really interesting story that is playing out somewhat in Florida is the fact that the military is a a big player in conservation. In this case, it's the red cockaded woodpecker, which, 
because of the way the country developed, the you know bases tend to be these islands of open land where endangered species will accumulate, and that and the and the military suddenly had to face a challenge of do we follow the law uh, or not to protect the species. Eventually, they said, yeah, we will do it, and they created a really effective program for protecting uh, all kinds of species, including lots of birds including the most the pickiest bird on the face of the earth which is the red cockaded woodpecker and you can find them on bases around florida as well as all across the south and so that if the military our argument is if the military can protect birds in the middle of bombing ranges and 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 you know busy runways and mm-hmm. training bases we should be able to do this elsewhere yeah yeah is, is eglin uh, a big place for that eglin uh, is is part of that. Um, you know, the, the the issue here is for red cockaded woodpeckers, a beautiful bird uh, that is um, dependent on the tallest of old uh, pine trees that are, that have been mostly removed from all across the South. So they they still exist on mm-hmm. on, on these bases, and uh, the military figured out well how can we build houses? They basically install cavities in these trees. To hurry them up, I'm telling your story. I'm afraid uh, <laughs> this is Beverly's. It's my bird. Story. That's my favorite bird. Yeah. Why is your Why is it your favorite? Well, partly because of the connect. I'm a I'm a North Carolinian uh, native, and um, the longleaf pine is, of course, the state tree, and um, the bird is very much located um, at Camp Lejeune in Fort Bragg in um, in North Carolina. So it just sort of feels like. You know, he's kin somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it is a weird symbiotic relationship because the military wants a lot of land, right? They want to be able to do their maneuvers, but they also don't want people encroaching on them and, and peeking over their, their fences. And they've got a lot of land. Uh, Camp Blanding uh, east of or west of, of Jacksonville is a critical linchpin in the Ocala Osceola Wildlife Corridor. The military has a ton of land. They've got a ton of money and they pretty much get to do whatever they want. So for conservationists to hitch their wagon to that group, it, it seems odd. But uh, yeah, I mean, for for a long time and, and across the country, this is taking place. It it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Since you mentioned woodpeckers, I just have to ask, could, do you mind telling the story about the the Lord God bird? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So the ivory billed woodpecker, which hasn't officially been seen since 1944, but there's a whole group of folks that believe it's still out there and can tell you the stories of having seen them. And we wanted to tell the story about uh, why we love the last birds, wh- why we respond sort of like the woodpecker. I mean, the uh, sparrow we will jump in at the last minute. And the ivory bill is the best I- example of that. So. We went off with uh, them, met them in a secret location in Louisiana and went looking for for this bird for for a couple of days. The ivory bill is described. Well, he's about the size of a crow and he looks a little bit like a pileated woodpecker. He has the um, the red crest um, and the difference between this bird and the pileated is size. And also there are white feathers on the edges of its wings. So um, that's how these folks who claim to have seen it, even now, that's the trait that they'll see. This bird needs an enormous amount of um, acreage in order to forage because they're so big. Mm-hmm. And they're mostly um, in swamps. And uh, we did not see one. We did get to see the swamp pretty well. In fact, we're heading out on this um, trip with them and uh, in, into the swamp. And the lead guy tells us, you know, by the way, we're going to see some water moccasins today. And Beverly was the third person <laughs> in line. He says, uh, and the third person is usually the one that gets hit. So <laughs> immediately <laughs> jump in. places. I was, yeah. you know, <laughs> for this uh, But what we did see was, you know, the, the allure of a bird that hasn't been seen and it has such appeal there's huge, you know, there's just all kinds of groups out there that are constantly looking for the ivory-billed woodpecker. And then in the middle of our research on this, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife announced that we're going to declare this bird extinct because we haven't seen it in so long. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of photos that are fuzzy and unclear, but nothing that's convincing. 
Well, that just created this huge hue and cry went up, which we didn't mind as we were writing the story. <laughs> sure. <laughs> boost. Um, and so that that gave us a chance to kind of explore this issue of how long do you leave birds in, in a protected status? And, and how do you focus on, you know, again, the birds that are plentiful and can still be rescued? Well, this group uh, that we went out with turned out to be kind of the key researchers. These are scientists and and you know veteran uh, ornithologists who come to believe in. It's called um, Project Principalis. That's for mm. the name Latin name of the bird, and they just this past week put out a enormously detailed report trying to argue that there's enough evidence that this bird is uh, still there. We're writing about it on our, can I add uh, that we have a website called sure. flyinglessons.us, uh, what we're learning from the birds. And we write a lot of you know shorter stories on that. And this it, it, caused a, a lot of focus, a renewed interest. So the ivory build, whether it's there or not, just continues to be uh, a topic people love to talk about. They were here in Florida too, weren't they? Yes, in Florida, but we crossed about you know most of the South wherever there's swampy lands, bottomlands, um, and the challenge there is the same as with a lot of birds, which is that you know that's where a lot of good wood is, so they go mm -hmm. in and the wood, and um, and there's no place for the bird to be. Yeah, lumber, turpentine, all that kind of stuff I, to say I, nothing I, of development. I only, yeah. I only mentioned that because I remember when there was a proposal by the St. Joe Company to build a new airport in the Panama city area, there were claims that, Oh wait, you can't build there. There's a, there's a, uh, an ivory built woodpecker nesting site in there. And, and of course, you know, you know that, they yeah, couldn't prove that, it. <laughs> that highlights um, really this um, sort of maybe a slightly unrealized um, benefit to keeping a bird like the ivory built on the list. And that is that it does, um, protects not only the bird itself or the animal, but also the habitat upon which mm -hmm. it depends, which is a clause of the Endangered Species Act that um, not everybody remembers to quote or is even necessarily aware of. So um, when they were having the hearings with um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, one, of the, one of the things that several uh, people brought up was the fact that you have these really rare swamplands and these huge trees being protected by virtue of the fact that you can't just go in and mow them all down mm -hmm. because there's potentially, this is potentially a um, ivory bill woodpecker habitat. And what that does is it protects every other species there that is living as well from the plants to the butterflies, to the bears, to, to what have you. Yeah. That you, people love animals or they say they love animals and they never stop to consider, well, what about the habitat? Well, I, I really, I really want my acreage and I really like my lawn and I really like my subdivision. I really like my neighborhood. You know, I've, I've got this stuffed animal, but you don't realize that that uh, polar bear stuffy you have, that animal needs hundreds of square miles of undeveloped land, habitat, a place to live and most people don't don't make that connection in in their head how much space and that's you know we talk about the panther all the time and again the cattail book and and path of the panther and these these wildlife corridors it, it demonstrates that these animals need a lot of room to roam you know this is not like you and your neighborhood and your you know 1200 square foot apartment or whatever it, it happens to be a a, a panther, a black bear, one of these birds, whooping cranes, you look at the migratory route, it's thousands of miles. So, you know, you have to protect the area, the land, the habitat, if you want to protect the animal. And, and part of the argument of this book is that it's possible to do that even in a, you know, highly developed place like Florida. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if, if we'll just take a, a little bit of care in putting aside land, and then also when we're sharing land, which is often going to be the case, we're coexisting with these birds, doing the things that don't get in its way. And all over Florida, there's these stories playing out of, of birds that are trying to survive in a populated area. Scrub jay. Scrub jay and mm -hmm. pelicans, uh, you know, uh, the ospreys. It can be done if we'll just take a little bit of care with them. And Florida is the, is the best example. That's why we spend so much time uh, there for this book. Uh, the best example uh, in, in the country in lots of ways of that struggle to coexist. Yeah, yeah. You did all this research. You wrote the book. 
talk to all these scientists, travel all over the place. Are you generally optimistic or pessimistic about the future of birds in America? We are optimistic and and also can see that not enough is being done in the long run, things that could be done uh, to try to make sure that there's a place for birds and other you know, wildlife in, in the future. The table is set. There's a, you know, all kinds of things that have been developed in terms of scientific and technology that are making it possible to figure out the things we need to know, like with the Florida grasshopper sparrow. But there's also a hesitancy to devote real money to conservation, even though it's not a huge sum. There's a law uh, pending in Congress right now, uh, Restoring America's Wildlife Act, that would provide the first funding in generations. Mm-hmm. These birds that are not getting it can't seem to get out of the Senate. Past yeah, I thought for sure that was going to pass in the last uh, session uh, you know, a year ago, I guess, 2022. And just uh, for a democratically controlled House, Senate and, and White House to fail to pass that bill is uh, a, a, a pox on all of them. I mean, just a, a, such a wasted opportunity. And that bill comes up a lot, the, the Saving America's Wildlife, as, as something that would be generationally meaningful to wildlife species, not just birds in Florida. Yeah, but uh, it raises another point, which is that everybody supports, seems to support, whenever you have polls, conservation. There's generally Mm -hmm. widespread agreement that we need to protect uh, our our natural resources, but it doesn't translate into the kind of political wallop that's that's Mm -hmm. needed push something like like this through. Birders are are the perfect example. Very passive. They don't really get together. Hunters, on the other hand, have formed you know powerful political uh, uh, support for the things they want, but birders, not so much. So it's really a, a, an interesting phenomenon that if we want to, you know, if we want to get things done, you got to do the political follow through, and that's not yeah. happening. Well, and that's a that's a, an issue. And boy, is, is Florida a case study for this? Yeah. It's a very easy thing to say you're in favor of clean water, green spaces, the Everglades, the springs, and then sit in Tallahassee and well, do nothing about it, or right. or worse, elect people who actively work against those things, which is what we've True. got right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people say they're conservationists and then vote for developers and non-conservationists. And well, I, was, I was just at a at a thing in Amelia Island, uh, Nassau County. There was a, a, a county commission meeting for a huge development. And all these people came out and they couldn't believe that the, the county commission voted in favor of this development. And I'm just shaking my head and I'm saying, all you people are going to go back and vote Republican. And then you're wondering why this county commission time and again votes for development, for development, against conservation, against conservation. This stuff starts on election day. Well, so, it's important to remember that the most significant president uh, when it comes to conservation was a Republican, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Yeah. And the second most was Richard, Richard Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those, you know, that's those are fascinating test cases to look at the, the circumstances that provided for that to happen. But yeah, the and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, how conservation has become part of the culture war, you know, global warming, uh, saving animals being, you know, that and, and that a lot of that, you know, you look at the, the spotted owl in Oregon. And, and again, the right has done a very effective job of making well, wildlife and natural spaces the enemy of working people and jobs well and all the complaints about esg oh we're we're gonna stop investing with via G- esg well e is environment mm-hmm. you're not going to invest for the environment i guess not right so and i yeah. think that part of the question is how do you make the argument how do you get it out of this uh, this political cultural war area well, and I think Craig does that the best, really, in Florida when when he says the the environment is the economy. You know, if you've got red tide closing your beaches, if you've got green muck covering your springs where people visit, you know, Florida people come here for the natural landscape, and and they may not be going off to uh, Payne's Prairie looking for grasshopper sparrows, but they want to go to the beach, and if that beach is stinking and fetid with rotten fish from a a red tide, uh, I think it's very easy 
uh, to tie in in Florida the environment to the economy and to clean drinking water. You know, again, there's a, a trickle down here. If we don't protect the land, which protects our springs and our drinking water, we are not going to have water to drink. And and that too, but, you know, look at fishing, hunting. I mean, those are huge economies in this state. Boating, uh, take away the clean water in this state and the, the economy goes with it. And, you know, in a lot of ways, birds, bringing it back to birds, are mm-hmm. um, still the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, birds, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, you know, birds are so much more environmentally sensitive than people are. But when the birds are not happy, generally the environment isn't good for people either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in fact, an interesting point that we make uh, is that companies like Walmart and the coffee maker and espresso are using birds to gauge the quality of the land that they use or their suppliers use. And in in South America, where coffee is grown, it's a very sensitive area for birds. Nespresso is using the number of birds in on the farms that they use to say, okay, this this land is doing pretty well, and it can actually grow better coffee by tracking the number of birds that are hmm. there. That's an example of of that that canary in the coal mine, you know, phenomenon. Yeah. Birds are telling us the state of of the uh, environment, and we need to be listening to them. Is the point we we're trying to make? That's yeah. very good. This is this is just such a fascinating book, and I, I encourage people to to go get a copy. Anders and Beverly Gyllenhaal are the authors. It is a wing and a prayer. The race to save our vanishing birds with a special emphasis on the Florida grasshopper sparrow just published in April of 2023. There is a link to purchase in the show notes. Uh, Anders and Beverly, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And oh, and please mention the what's the website uh, for Uh, flying flying lessons uh, dot US is the website. You know, as you know, I grew up in Florida and Mm -hmm. I grew up hearing I grew up hearing what I like to think of as the classic Florida argument, which is, you know, my mom, major fan of birds, mm-hmm. loves watching the birds out in the backyard, watching the birds over at my grandmother's house uh, and constantly talking about the birds. And meanwhile, uh, my dad in the land development business as a mm-hmm. land surveyor, you know, all the all of his clients are guys who are coming in with the bulldozers and so forth. And so, you know, on the one hand, these are jobs. This is money. This mm-hmm. is how we make a living. On the other hand, but you're destroying the habitat for the birds and you're destroying yeah. the habitat for what makes this place special and how you reconcile those two things. And I guess that's something I'm still struggling with today. But, you know, they're the, what they were talking about, which is we have to find a way to coexist. That's sort of the, the key here. And I think we're we're doing our best to figure it out as far as setting land aside. For these species, setting aside the Florida Wildlife mm-hmm. Corridor, and you know we had Carlton Ward on to talk about that. Uh, setting aside land for state parks, uh, we had uh, yeah, the know, former our, superintendent the, on we, right to talk about that, and uh, Eric Draper, and um, you know these are these are the ways we get to that, and all of the rhetoric about pro growth and and pro business and all that. We got to remember, you can go too far and lose the things that make Florida a special place. No question. And if you're looking for something to do on the scale of your yard, plant a native tree, put an oak tree in, put native plants in, take your lawn out, put some black-eyed Susans in. I, you know, as a member of the Florida Native Plant Society, I, I tell people I don't grow plants; I grow insects, and those are the insects <laughs> that the birds need so those are 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 steps you can take in in your own yard to welcome birds to florida exactly well and uh you know i go back to the the show we did with uh jeff and ann vandermeer talking Mm -hmm. about we're rewilding your yard that's a that's a key step to take turn your own yard into a a place that welcomes birds welcome to florida welcome to florida tweet tweet